Equine health is our business. Horses and education are our passion. Welcome to the EquiConnect podcast. Here, we will have case-based conversation and talk about interesting news and information with the goal of sharing knowledge, focusing on equine health. Hello, and thank you for joining us on our new episode of our Equa Connect podcast brought to you by McKee Pownell Equine Services. I'm your host, Karen Fell, and today we're doing something a little different. We are repurposing one of our webinars by Dr. Tova Caldwell about pain in horses. If you are liking what you're listening to and you want to see the full webinar, please follow our link on our website and you're able to access it there. So thank you for joining us this afternoon. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tova Caldwell, and uh, I'm an associate veterinarian with McKee Pownell. I work out of the Campbellville office. I have been with McKee Pownell for about the last 10 years, actually. I originally worked down in Niagara, and about three years ago, I guess, I moved up to the Campbellville office. Over the time that I've spent at McKee Pownell, my clinical focus has really started to hone in on lameness and performance maintenance. I'm certified in chiropractic and acupuncture, and I did that out of a desire to understand more about pain and behavior and how those things manifest themselves in horses, not just in performance horses, but, you know, I do have an interest in performance horses, but really kind of across the full spectrum of horses. I really have developed a special interest in back and spinal pain as it relates to lameness and performance, and as well as I said, the behavioral manifestations of pain and fear, how we recognize them, how we don't recognize them, how horses try to communicate to us, which I've learned is not always very clear, and it can be very difficult to understand what they're actually trying to tell us. The big question here is what does behavior tell us? And I think when you talk to different people, there's a lot of different opinions on behavior. And I think that that's really why it's important because understanding behavior, um, it's very difficult because obviously they can't talk to us. Uh, I always like to say that they actually do talk to us. It's just up to us to actually listen to what they're trying to tell us Um, because behavior is a means of communication. And so my personal belief is that horses, there, there are, I hate to make such a strong statement, but I really don't believe there are bad horses. I don't believe they're mean. I don't believe they try to hurt people. I don't believe that they have bad intentions. And so when you see horses that are behaving poorly and are often mislabeled as being bad horse, that really gets to me because I think that that behavior is exactly how they are Uh, trying to, they're trying to communicate to us and they're frustrated that we're not understanding. And so I think it's really, that, that is my personal belief. There are no bad horses. Behavior is a means of communication and it's up to us to listen to it. There's a lot of science behind behavior, trying to understand what behaviors mean, what they indicate, how they're correlated with different physiological responses. And then of course, there's the, the big question of personality versus behavior. What's the difference? You know, and, and what is more personality? What is more behavior? How do they go together? And then the big question is, why does it matter? Um, as I've said, behavior really is a manifestation of coping mechanisms in a lot of ways. And it's important because behavior indicates welfare issues. And for the well-being of the horse, it is up to us to understand what that behavior tells us. Many behaviors, especially in their subtle signs, are overlooked 
people may misinterpret them or misunderstand them, myself included. And that's important because these behaviors are often early warning signs and they can progress through a hierarchy of behaviors to much more forceful, much more loud, much more dominant behaviors that then pose risk not only to the horse, but to the people around them. So understanding what they're trying to tell us in the early stages is incredibly important. There was also a research study that came out of the UK a couple of years ago that showed nearly 60% of horses that were presented for slaughter were at the slaughterhouse because of behavioral issues. And that's a big thing because if those behavioral issues were all manifesting as the ways of them trying to tell us something was wrong and we didn't understand that, there's some pretty big implications there for welfare. You know, and, and if these horses are going to the slaughterhouse because they, and they don't need to, you know, we really owe it to ourselves to understand what's happening. So there's a lot of different causes of aversive behavior um, in the literature. And most of this talk today is going to be based on science and what the, what the literature tells us out there. Um, so we know that inappropriate training is, is definitely a problem with behavioral issues. We know that there can be problems between horse, the horse-human relationship. There's an interesting paper done in 2012 that actually looked at horses' physiological responses to stress in terms of their heart rate, their body temperature, um, and their coping mechanisms, and how those differed in stressful situations with their rider. And what it showed is that the relationship between horse and rider will help to determine how well that horse can do the task that it was asked to do. This has been also shown in show settings as well in terms of competition. So the relationship between the horse and the human is really important. And when it's not a good relationship, poor behaviors can result. Another big problem is that the horse just doesn't understand what's expected of it or what's being asked of it. The human doesn't understand what the horse is saying, as we've already talked about. A lot of these behaviors can also be the horse's attempt to gain control over a man-made environment because obviously they're domesticated and they're put in uh, environments that are very not natural to them. And so they have to find ways to cope with that and to be comfortable in that environment. And so a lot of these behaviors are adaptive and they are done so just for that very purpose so that they can cope and manage the environment that they're currently living in. So the goal for today is really, it's not to go through every kind of behavior that there is or to be able to understand every behavior. What it is, is to understand what normal pain, normal fear, and normal stress responses are, to understand the importance of listening to behavior. And the point is not to overanalyze every behavior that you see, but it's really important to pay attention and analyze trends or changes in behavior in the horses that you're working with, because that's really what's important. At the end, we're going to go over some case discussions just to talk about um, that just highlight some of these funny behaviors and what they might actually mean. So this talk kind of came about, I was reading a paper that came out last year that was titled Improving Recognitions of Effective States in Horses. This paper was based on, um, there were six different videos, uh, ridden dressage horse, an in-hand dressage horse, a bridalist riding horse, a horse doing some natural horsemanship training, a Western pleasure horse, and a horse undergoing some behavioral modification. And these horses, these videos were shown to a group of horse owners on Facebook. I think there was about a thousand people that watched these videos and then commented on what they thought the primary cause of the behavior was. 
They also had a group of behavioral experts, equine behavior experts, veterinarians, comment on the same group of videos. And the biggest thing that came out of this was there was a very big difference between what the experts saw and what horse owners saw. You know, most horse owners commented that they saw angry behavior, whereas most behaviorists would comment that they saw painful or conflicted or anxious behavior. And so what they found is that indicators of distress were very commonly overlooked in these videos and very commonly mislabeled as other things, poor behavior, bad training, inappropriate handling, things that might result in the horse being punished for its behavior when it was really actually trying to communicate that it was uncomfortable or painful. Probably one thing that was quite interesting about this study is that the two videos that had natural horsemanship and bridleless riding, which you know are probably thought to be less stressful or easier on the horse, in both of those videos, the horses were showing very clear behavior or pain behaviors. But because of the setting, they were actually very much commented on by the pollers as being beneficial being happy, being comfortable. And the respondents would be happy for their horses to be in that same situation, which is interesting because even though they were showing pain behaviors, they were overlooked, whereas they were more obviously pointed out in other videos. And because it was a natural or a bridleless um, situation, there was a bit of a bias in watching those videos. And so it just goes to show you that we don't always recognize things. And that's not just for horse people, that's for me as well. Sometimes I don't recognize them either. So it it really was an interesting um, paper that highlighted that we need to be better about recognizing these behaviors in horses. So another paper that came out a couple of years ago that did some look at actually indicators of pain in horses and recognizing facial expressions of pain in horses. This was an interesting study. They had a group of horses and they did put them through mildly painful stimulus in order to monitor their responses. But what they found is that facial expressions in horses uh, very highly correlate with level of discomfort. And so the biggest things that they found, as you can see in these pictures, so over here in A, uh, in the drawing, this is a pretty natural horse, relaxed, pain-free. And then in painful horses, they found that their eye tends to take on this very angulated shape due to contraction of the muscles around the eye that their nostrils tend to take on a more squarish position as opposed to elongated. Their facial muscles and their muzzle tends to become much more tense. And then their ear position either tends to be down into the side or one forward, one back. So more of an asymmetrical um, ear movement. And these, all of these behaviors were very highly correlated with discomfort in horses. And it's been shown that this is a beneficial and a very accurate way to interpret pain in horses. So looking at their facial expression, especially this eye angle, ear position, nostril position, and the tension in the facial muscles can be a very accurate way to decide whether a horse is in discomfort or not. So other indicators of pain that we see commonly or that I see commonly can really posture in its own right is a very important one. 
So different postures, and again, it, it might not be the way that they stand all the time, but when you start to notice changes in their posture. So in this first picture up here, this horse is holding his abdomen in what we call tucked up quite tightly. And that is often an indication of some kind of abdominal rib thoracic pain. It's usually an indication of discomfort. And so it's important to pay attention to that if you see that the horse is standing tucked up. Horse in the middle here is standing quite stretched out. Again, it's not specific for any type of pain, but this is not a normal or a natural stance for a horse to take. And so when you see this kind of behavior, you should be asking yourself, why is that horse doing that? This one over here on the, the far right is a horse that is just not standing square and won't stand square. And that is a standing square is actually quite difficult. Um, they have to be fit and well aligned in order to do that well. And some horses absolutely can't or won't do it. And that is uh, that's an indication that something might be bothering that horse. It may be sound, it may be able to do its job, it may be just fine, but not able to stand square or unwilling to stand square always sticks out in my mind as something I need to pay attention to. This horse over here, you know, he's indicating several other, um, you know, facial expressions of pain. His body is quite tense. I put this picture on here mostly because of the position of the hind end. He's got his hind end tucked way underneath of him. Um, he's holding, you can see his muscles are very tight and he's holding himself quite tightly. And this is, a, this is another posture that indicates discomfort. I see this a lot in much milder forms, but in horses that have sacroiliac or even hawk pain, they'll often adopt this stance in their stall. Sometimes they'll bank their shavings up underneath of them, or sometimes they'll sit on their water bucket in this position. And it can be an indication, um, even though they're sound and they're doing their job, of some subclinical um, hawk pain, sacroiliac or hind end discomfort of some kind. And so I really pay attention. This posture is quite severe, but this in milder forms, especially in the hind end, is something I always pay attention to when I'm watching a horse. So another thing we see often is horses that hold their mouth open. Um, you'll see, you know, this horse I think is quite comfortable. It has a flash on, but it is quite comfortable. His eye is soft. This horse is obviously not. Um, you can see the whites of his eye. He's got an angle to his eye, his mouth is open. I think horses that hold their uh, mouth open under saddle, and this has been shown in the research, um, it's not a normal behavior. They might always do it, but just because they always do it, it doesn't mean it's normal. And it is has been associated with discomfort and a manifestation. It doesn't always mean oral discomfort or dental discomfort, but it is generally uh, accepted that when a horse opens its mouth under saddle, it is communicating that it is not comfortable in the job that it is doing. Another posture or another indication that I see that's often associated with uncomfortable horses is this, is horses that will hang their penis out or extrude their penis. I actually see this a lot, even when a horse is colicky or a little bit uncomfortable, but we'll see this in ridden horses as well. Um, either at the end of their ride, they'll stand with their penis extruded or they'll have it down while they're working or at the beginning of their ride. Generally, it's not something that they do normally. And I think it is something to pay attention to if they are hanging their penis out. Also, this low head carriage. There has been some work and a fair amount of research that's correlated head, head and neck position with discomfort. Again, not any kind of specific discomfort, 
but a general indication that something is not feeling right. Another big thing we look at and we see a lot of that may indicate discomfort is behavioral changes. An increase in anxiety, increase in biting, painting of the ears. A big one is that if they decide all of a sudden they don't want to be caught in the field um, or social isolation, a lot of those things indicate that something is not right. might not always be pain, but it can be pain. And it's something to pay attention to when you see changes in these kinds of behaviors. An increase in girthiness. A reluctance to work if all of a sudden when they, de- they decide they don't want to do the job that they're not used to doing, an increase in spookiness. A lot of these things, these behavior changes can indicate something is wrong. Now, there are definitely horses that are naturally spooky. There are horses that are naturally anxious, and that doesn't mean they're in pain. It's when you start to see these changes. So if you're a very calm, quiet, relaxed horse, all of a sudden one day is acting very different. These changes in behavior can often indicate that discomfort or pain is underlying. So there was another study done by um, kind of the goddess of equine performance. Her name is Sue Dyson. She works out of the UK. And she released a study last year that suggested that upwards of 50% of ridden horses do their job in pain. And this is a pretty profound number when you think about it. Now, the level of pain is not specified, but what she's indicating is that this is all sort of subclinical or easily missed discomfort because the horses are still doing their jobs to some degree. In this research project, they found up to 24 behaviors that are correlated with discomfort that ridden horses show. And I put down here 14 of the most common indicators of discomfort that they found in this study. And I think it's things that we all see quite often. We see horses going with their ears back. We already talked about mouth being open or their tongue hanging out. Changes in eye expression, going about the bit, tossing their head, tilting their head, uh, unwillingness to go forward. That's the reluctance we talked about. Uh, Crookedness. Crookedness is a big one. You know, going one direction or the other. Their haunches may fall in. They're unwilling to bend one direction or the other, sort of any directional issues. Hurrying, um, spontaneous changing of gates, especially at the canter. So lead changes, um, inappropriate lead changes before or after a fence or even just on the flat. Uh, A poor quality canter in general is often an indication that there is some kind of discomfort happening. Um, Resisting, and then a big one is stumbling and toe dragging, because we see this, I see this very commonly. I see all of these things actually in a lot of horses that I look at. And just because we see them doesn't certainly doesn't mean that it's um, obvious what's the matter or that something is bugging them. And it doesn't also mean that something is injured or painful. It may be a conditioning thing. It may be a muscle balance thing. It may be a muscle strength thing. Um, But all of these things come together to cause the subclinical discomfort that lead to these behaviors being observed in horses. Um, I can get a copy of this paper for anybody that is interested. So certainly you can always send us an email if anybody wants to know more about this. So some other performance-related issues just to um, talk briefly about things that I hear commonly from some of my clients. So my horse always throws the same shoe. So that can be frustrating, but it also might indicate that there's an issue. 
I have a number of chiropractic clients that when they're due for an adjustment, the horse will start to throw a shoe because they're moving slightly crookedly. And so they're catching themselves on one side. So uh, patterns like that, important to pay attention to. Urinating small frequent amounts under saddle. This is more common in geldings, um, but geldings with underlying bladder issues, if they have a bladder stone, um, well, often when they're working, that bladder stone will bounce around, cause some irritation, and will result in a horse wanting to urinate more when it's working. So it might want to stop in the middle of a workout and urinate as opposed to wait to the end, what it, which it would normally do. So again, strange behavior, but pay attention to it. They're heavy on the forehand, they're unwilling to engage. Directional preferences. Um, this is a big one because, in my opinion, horses don't choose what direction they like to go. I think there's some mechanics, biomechanics or something inherently in their body that makes it easier for them to go one direction or another. So when I hear people say, you know, my horse will pick up the right lead and canter uh, right or do right to life changes every time, but won't do the opposite. To me, that's a functional issue in that horse. Might not be pain, but there's a functional issue there because they're not choosing to do it one way and not do it the other. And so when you see those asymmetries, especially when they'll do it fine one direction and they know their job, but they won't do it the other, pay attention to that because there's something happening in that horse that's making it hard for that to happen. Bucking after a jump, uh, stopping before a jump. A lot of times horses that may have front foot pain or any kind of discomfort that may not want to land on the other side will stop going into a fence. Spooking going through doors or going through different light levels may indicate an issue with the eyes. Biting at legs under saddle. I've had a number of these horses actually over the years that will start to, when the rider stops or if they start to protest under saddle, they'll turn around and try and bite the legs of the rider, usually on the left side. And this has just been my own personal experience that a number of these horses seem to respond very well to gastric meds. So whether they have some sort of some um, underlying gastric issues, ulcer issue or discomfort, but I've seen a number of those horses try and bite legs. Uh, we already talked a little bit about sitting on the water bucket in the stall to alleviate hind end discomfort. If they have a preference for footing, uh, sometimes horses, if the outdoor arena say is deeper or harder, they don't want to work in different footings. Again, pay attention to that because different types of discomfort will be easier to work on hard ground versus soft ground. Um, another big one that I hear a lot of is won't pick up one hind leg. So especially when this happens in an older horse that very well knows their job, this can very often indicate that there is some form of discomfort happening, maybe in the opposite leg that they don't want to pick up and weight bear. Sometimes it's been associated in my experience with discomfort through the SI joints or through the uh, thoracolumbar junction of the spine where they rotate their weight and have to actually twist to support on the other side. So whenever I have a horse that decides it doesn't want to pick up one leg, which can become a really ingrained problem for some of them because they're so sure it's going to hurt they just won't do it even if you get them feeling better but pay attention to that because I do think that that's important uh, and another one is scratching tail um, scratching the tail incessantly I think this can be associated with some sacral or some pelvic issues you've seen a lot of horses that will start to do that again I have a few Cairo clients that 
we know they're in need of an adjustment when they start to scratch their tail. So oftentimes we think of this as being deworming and I as well do, or even dry hair, dry skin. But when those sort of typical things don't work and the horse is still scratching, start to think outside of the box and what, what else might be causing these issues. So just a note before we move on from pain on roll core, we're going to go to talking about fear next. And there's been some interesting um, work on this, this position, which we call roll core. And we do see that horses, when they're ridden like this under the bit, under the diagonal, that they do show significant signs of pain and discomfort. You can see in both of these pictures, the mouth is open, the eye is angled, the muzzle is tight, and these horses are uncomfortable. There's been some research that's shown that these horses do show increased signs of physiological stress responses, higher heart rate, higher cortisol levels. What I found interesting about this is that there's one particular study correlated horses that are ridden in this frame more often with having a generalized increased fear response especially when in this riding frame but also outside of it. So um we I, I felt I had to put this in here because we talk about rural core a lot and you, you know, there's a lot of welfare concerns with it, but there's actually science as to why it's a welfare concern. And so I think it's um it's important to remember that. So we're gonna go in and talk a little bit about fear, um, moving on from pain. So Interesting, there's been some work on fear in horses, and there has been shown that there is actually a genetic component to fear. The silver coat color especially has been linked genetically to increased fear responses. Um, so there is some genetic component to that, which I found was interesting. And then just like anything else, there can be a lot of memory-based conditioning with fear, both, you know, once they decide that they, you know, it's not good very difficult to change their minds, but conditioning is very important with fear-based responses. There's also physical signs. So there's a paper that came out a few years ago that really isolated the physical signs of, of fear separate from the physical signs of, say, stress or discomfort. So in these horses, you get the pointed ears, a very elongated lip with tense neck, as opposed to that short, tightened, and furrowed lip that we saw with the pain responses. Leaning back, vocalizing, sidestepping, a lot of the very obvious things that we know that we associate with fear. So moving on to stress, indicators of stress in horses can be a little bit more difficult to uh, overtly see. So in the acute stress, just like any other animal, just like people, we're going to see the increased heart rate, we're going to see increased temperature, and you can see a variety of mixed behaviors. So you, we all know that sort of explosive, stressed out horse. We, we understand what that looks like. Um, there's been some research that have shown, though, that have, has correlated stress responses with actual cortisol levels and other physiological changes in the horse. And in the more subtle signs, so the more quiet horses that are a bit more internal, things like blink rate, eye wrinkles, the number of twitches that they do, and just generalized tension in their body, even though they're very subtle to see, can actually be associated with quite high levels of physiological stress. The other thing to think about, though, is chronic stress, because 
we see this and and you'll see how this progresses to some of the, the next topics that we're going to talk about. But chronic stress is really important in horses because there are a number of very important factors or very important effects on the body, not just in horses, but on people, animals, anything. Over time with chronic stress, we do see changes in white blood cells and we see immunosuppression with persistently high cortisol levels. And this can lead to a whole wealth of health issues, gastric issues, reproductive issues, stereotypes, um, muscle loss, and mixed behaviors. And there's even this notion of chronic stress leading to depression, which there's some really interesting research on that we'll talk about here in the coming slides. So recognizing stress as a behavior and the behaviors that can be associated with that, again, important to understand what they're trying to tell us. So this was a paper that came out a few years ago, again, that looked at the various degrees of behavior that can be associated with stress. So in the calm horse, but even in the very low, uh, low level stress, you know, you just have horses that are passing manure. Um, in the in the presence of a novel situation, all the way up to these horses that are, you know, they're stomping their feet, they're very obviously stressed. And these behaviors were put in this order, and they were actually linked with physiological cortisol, heart rate, temperature responses, so that we can actually use these behaviors to predict what level of stress the horse is actually seeing. It's actually been proven to be fairly accurate in that so I put it in here. Again, any of this information that you would like to see more of, I know there's a lot of stuff on this slide and the point is not to read it all, but just to know that there is a correlation between what we see and what they're feeling. And we can use that to really understand what the welfare circumstances are of the horse based on what they're telling us. So in another paper that talked a little bit about stress, um, and I found this interesting because it tracked cortisol levels in horses based on their housing and their husbandry. So it looked at cortisol levels um, and stress responses in horses that were tied or in a straight stall versus horses that were in group turnout versus horses that were stalled just in a regular stall, but more often than they were turned out. They also looked at how they changed in horses when they switched groups or when they went through feed and water withholding. And what they found is that, you know, horses that were in their more natural turned out in a herd situation, their cortisol levels were much lower than horses that were in some of these other housing situations that we know horses live in all the time. Now, what was interesting is that these horses were appearing to deal with these situations just fine. You know, they were adapted and they were coping, but their physiological indicators of stress were much higher. And so this is important because we often see horses that seem to just not be doing well in particular environments. And I've, I've had a number of these cases over the years where the behavior is very indicative that something is wrong. Anxiety levels are high. They're not acting like themselves. Bolting, breaking cross ties, won't be caught, very anxious in their stall, things that are abnormal for the horse. And we can't figure out why it is. And sometimes changing their location or their environment can go a long way to helping these horses. So it's important to remember that how we keep horses may not be what is best for that particular horse. And so I found that this was a really interesting paper because we definitely see horses 
where they just don't seem to do well in their situation. And when you, when you change that situation, you seem to have a much happier, much more balanced horse. So talking about stress coping mechanisms. So there's two groups of, of horses that we all know. We've got the horses that are very internal, quiet. We call them stoic. They don't really share their emotions very well. And then we have the other, the other end of the spectrum of these horses that are very overt. We know exactly what they're thinking. We know exactly what they're feeling. We like to call them trauma queens. So these horses, we call them active copers. So they are overtly reactive. They're shown to have a fairly high sympathetic tone or high level of this sort of stress response, um, higher levels of stress hormones circulating in their bodies versus the more passive copers. So these are the stoic, calm, kind of go with the flow horses. These horses have been shown to have more parasympathetic tone, which is more of the anti-stress hormones circulating through their body. And why, I talk, why I'm talking about this and why I found this particularly interesting is that cribbers have been associated. So we always think of cribbing as a stereotypical behavior. There's some evidence to say it's stress-related, some evidence to say that it's not. But we think of cribbers have actually been associated with passive copers. So more of these internal stoic horses, they tend to be the ones that are going to crib over the active copers. And so that begs the question, really, does an agreeable horse, do these stoic horses that are, you know, kind of going with the flow, they're internal, they don't really share a whole lot, does that mean they're okay? Does that mean they're comfortable? And uh, the answer is, is I don't think that it is. I don't think those horses that just go with the flow and appear to take everything in stride, I don't think they're always okay. Certainly there are some that are, but I don't think we can make that assumption for everybody. There's a paper that came out that was uh, titled Poker Face. And this particular paper talked about those stoic horses and how different horses that went through the same stressful situations, the stoic ones versus, or the passive copers versus the active copers, went through the same situation and had similar physiological responses of stress, despite the fact that they were showing on the outside very different behaviors. Um, and so I, I always say this, anybody that knows me, the stoic horses and the drama queens, they both have their own sets of problems and they're both very difficult to understand because the ones that are really dramatic, sometimes it's hard to understand how legitimate their reaction actually is. Like, is it as bad as they say they're saying it is? Um, and so it's easy to overinterpret. But the stoic horses for me are significantly harder and they present significantly more challenges because, gosh, sometimes those horses will be in dire amounts of pain or very sick and they're just standing there telling you that it's okay. They don't show you very much on the outside. So the learning lesson here, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, is that a quiet horse that is accepting doesn't necessarily mean that sort of stoic, go-with-the-flow, bomb-proof horse doesn't necessarily mean they're okay. And we still, even though they're being agreeable, we owe it to those horses to pay attention to their welfare and what they might actually be experiencing underneath that sort of stoic facade that they put. 
because um, to go on here, because there is a lot of evidence that suggests that, again, they're not. So we know that these horses are prey animals, meaning that, you know, the fight or flight response is real. And prey animals, they want to look as inconspicuous as possible. So unless they absolutely have to show that something is wrong, they prefer not to because they don't want to attract attention to themselves. And then, you know, moving on from this poker face, we have this concept of these shutdown horses or these horses that have learned that they're helpless, that they can't do anything about their situation. Uh, And then again, this notion of depression in horses, which there is some really interesting research to suggest that it's real. Uh, And again, the important thing here is that these horses are often uh, overinterpreted or misinterpreted as being relaxed and okay. And they might not actually be. So there is this notion of what we call the shutdown horse. um, And there's been some interesting research on it. And it comes from, there's actually a fair amount of research that looked at dogs and even people with this phenomenon. And there's some in horses that suggest that horses can learn that they're helpless. And so they may fight and, you know, they may show a lot of behavioral outward indication that they're not happy. But if they're not able to change the situation, they eventually accept it for what it is. And then they lose that ability or even they lose the ability to fight or to learn that they can fight. Um, There's an interesting study in dogs that showed that when they were repeatedly uh, subjected to a painful stimulus and they couldn't do anything to avoid it, they eventually accepted it. And then they even lost the ability to be conditioned that they could get out of it, even if they were given the opportunity to. And there is some evidence that this exists in horses too, this idea of learned helplessness. And when we see this in horses, there's some very characteristic uh, findings that come with these horses. So we often see that they're motivational, cognitive, and emotional uh, responses are all dampened. So they may not want to work. They may show a little bit of a withdrawn or kind of a spaced out appearance. They have a very blank look on their face. They often have low head carriage. And so they have their head and neck below their withers. That is often an indication in this particular set of research that these horses are shut down or withdrawn. They tend to have a passive personality. You know, we tend to call that more woe than go. And I very hesitantly put this in here with the question of school horses, because the research that's been done on this idea of learned helplessness has actually been done mostly on school horses, where they've identified this proportion of horses that have just accepted that this is their job, this is what they have to do, and they continue to do it. Now, that's not to say that every school horse is like that, and, you know, this is Again, not my opinion. This is very much based on what the research has suggested. But we tend to see this population of shut down horses that have this very characteristic blank stare, poor, um, poor motivation, not really interested in interacting, um, very, very quiet, very withdrawn. We tend to see these more in the school horse population. I think we tend to call them bomb proof as well. And again, it, the point of this is not to assume that every quiet accepting horse you see is shut down, but it's to be aware that it is a possibility. And when we come across those horses, we owe them to try and figure out what exactly that behavior is all about. So the million dollar question is, is can horses be depressed? I've been 
asked this a lot, actually. And up until I was, you know, putting some information together for this particular presentation, I didn't realize that there was a lot of work out there that um, suggests that they can be depressed. And I think I probably would have told you that they couldn't be prior to this. Um, But what I have learned is that this population of withdrawn horses that we've been talking about, they show very similar symptoms and very similar behaviors to depressed people. So you have this reduced responsiveness, um, a bit withdrawn, indifferent to their environment, kind of like me, whatever, but heightened emotional anxiety. So when these horses were presented with a novel stimuli, they tended to react much more emotional and with much more anxiety than the non-withdrawn horse. And again, this is similar to depressed people that that are characterized with anxiety. Very key facial features, meaning that sort of distant blank eye that really doesn't give you a lot of information. This is common in depressed people. Key body postures. So again, that low head carriage, not necessarily in people, but in horses. And there are other body postures associated with depression in people. Um, And even more interestingly, these withdrawn or sort of checked out horses, there is a higher incidence in females. And there are breed predispositions. And so that indicates that there is a genetic component as well as a gender component. And both of those things exist in human depression as well. So there has been some work that's correlated these signs with actual, you know, with depression as we know that it occurs in people. And there are a lot of significant similarities between the two. The other thing that we see in these horses is that there's reduced pleasure-seeking behavior. So they challenge these horses, this group of withdrawn horses, by offering them treats, something that they should like. You know, most horses will like sugar treats. Um, and they found that there was this particular subgroup of horses had reduced pleasure-seeking behavior, meaning they weren't really that interested in the treats. We know this happens in people as well. And the thing I found much, very interesting about this particular study is that this group of withdrawn horses showed a much higher incidence of stereotypical behaviors. So these are the things like cribbing, weaving, wood chewing, these kinds of things that we, you know, we see very commonly. And a lot of times we don't really know what they mean or why they do it, or we don't have a great handle on how to control it. But the this population of horses, and there's two studies by this particular author, found that these withdrawn horses tend to show this type of behavior, these stereotypical behaviors, much more than the non-withdrawn horse. So going back to that body position thing that we were talking about, especially with head position, this particular study, and it's the same one that looked at depress, um, the, the last information that we were just talking about, they did find that this low angled head tends to very much be correlated with these horses that are withdrawn. Now, whether this is, you know, related to pain or depression or emotional or psychological factors, we're not sure. But a lot of times horses that are in this state tend to hold their head low, you know, as opposed to the more normal observing horse. And it does differ. And it's important to recognize this resting or sleeping horse, because if you go through and look for pictures of horses on the internet, as I was doing, you'll see a lot that look like this and they're just resting, they're sleeping, their eyes are half closed, they might look a bit check, you know, checked out, but they're resting. 
And what they found is that these horses tend to have a more rounded curve to their neck and their head position is slightly higher than these horses that tend to be a little bit withdrawn or a little bit checked out, which have their head lower than their wither. So body position, again, we've talked about posture, but body position, um, interesting findings here to suggest that uh, we need to pay attention to that. Okay, so we're going to take a little break and we're going to go into talk about cases next. All right, so let's talk about some more um, individual cases and how behaviors brought my attention. Most of these cases are are mine or in my practice, not all of them. But this is a this is a young horse. Um, she's a four year old mare. This is a very common situation because young horses, especially, um, trying to decide if there's actually an issue, meaning there's some sort of discomfort or some sort of functional issue versus um, weakness, strength conditioning, versus training, versus horse issues. Like young horses that show vague behaviors can be very difficult, not only for you guys, but for us to understand as well. But because I know that this particular group of horses, I try to pay extra attention to and I try to never make assumptions on. So this young horse, four-year-old mare, um, her history is that she was having a lot, as a young horse, had a lot of difficulty picking up her hind legs. It took the owner a really long time to train this horse to be able to pick up her hind legs. She wasn't bad or nasty about it. She just was very reluctant to do it. So having the farrier out was quite difficult. We had to sedate her a couple of times for the farrier. Um, you know, at that time she was in training, there was no overt lameness, no overt discomfort, but, you know, she just had a very hard time picking up her legs. As she progressed into training, we started to notice that she was having uh, quite a bit of a difficult time cantering right. So she cantered left relatively well, um, but cantering right was a little bit more difficult. She would occasionally buck. She did buck the owner off at one point, like really quite forcefully saying, get off my back. Um, and the other thing for her is that she would not stand square. The owner noticed that she would always stand like this with the right front, uh, sorry, the right hind leg slightly in front of the left hind leg. And even when you tried to correct her, and I've done this myself with this horse, very difficult. She really did not want to do that. Again, not bad, not overtly spoken about it, just reluctant um, and, you know, really would not do that. So all of these things you could classify as normal horse behavior. And in some young horse behavior, and in some young horses, it is normal behavior. And it is just a matter of training, gaining confidence, building muscle, all those kinds of things. This horse, that was not the case. Um, so I'm just going to show you a few videos of her. So this is, we're just going to focus on the right lead canter here for the most part. So this is kind of her baseline right lead canter before we had done anything to try and figure out. So you're watching her on the lunge line. She's got her head to the outside. She's rushing. She's a little unbalanced. Bunny hopping at the canter here, meaning that her hind legs are pushing. You saw there she just switched her lead completely and then switched back. And then she just outright stops. So you can see from watching that video that the right lead canter is just unbalanced. You know, she switched the lead once, she bunny hopped at the beginning, and then she she stopped. And this was quite repeatable behavior every time we asked her to canter, right? So we did a little bit of work on this mare to try and figure out, you know, what was really going on. And, and to give you one other piece of information, 
she had not been overtly lame at all. And then she did become more obviously unsound in this right hind, which caused us to do some more investigation. And what we found in this mare is that she had some chronic ligament damage in the right stifle that likely happened as a very young horse. And she also had some moderate arthritis in her right SI joint. So this ultrasound up here is of the SI joints. This is an internal ultrasound done from the rectum looking at the bottom of the pelvis. This is her left SI joint over here on the left, and you can see nice, clear joint margins. And then when you look over here on the right, you can see that there's no clear joint margins. The bone margins are quite irregular. This would be the bone margin coming up here. And you just see you lose that nice, crisp definition that we have over here on this side. And so we identified two fairly uh, moderate problems for a young horse in training to have, both of which could be explaining what was happening here. And likely it's a combination of both. So we went ahead and we actually blocked the right stifle to see if we could differentiate how much one was contributing over the other. And I want you to watch the difference in this canter of this horse now. Now, it's not perfect, but again, I think we can all appreciate that 20 minutes later, 15 minutes later, after having her stifle numbed, watch her here again she picks up a fairly nice canter for a young horse I was fairly shocked to see the difference here and what this indicated to me is although she had an acute lameness that caused us to investigate here the problems that were causing all of these sort of vague behavioral issues from the last year of her life were all related and so we were ended up being able to figure out that, you know, none of it was behavioral stuff. It was all her way of communicating to us. And because she's a bit of a quiet talker, it took her to become more obviously lame before we actually started to look for a problem. So it was a really important lesson for me, you know, that you can't always assume that it's just how they are or that you know, that it's a young horse and she needs to develop strength because sometimes there's actual issues happening under there. So this next case is another, a client of mine, it's a 10-year-old warm blood jumper. And this horse caused me to be stumped for a very long time, a whole season really of jumping. He always was very sound to watch him go, but his left lead canter would intermittently be more unbalanced. And what happened towards the end of the season is he started intermittently ducking out of fences and running left. Every time I watched this horse go, completely sound. Um, Cairo exam, acupuncture exam, you know, uh, sport horse maintenance stuff was all done. Everything was fine. I literally looked at this horse from one end to the other. But he was ducking left and struggling with the left lead canter under, uh, you know, and he was doing a big job. And so that was the only time we saw these problems coming out. But I could not convince myself that it was a behavior because it was always left-sided. And so, again, there was something bothering this horse. We eventually got this horse into a bone scan. And what we found is that this is picture over here on the right is the cervical spine or the neck. And this is a nuclear scan or a bone scan that shows weight down here at the base of the neck in C67. 
he had um, a lot of bony reaction and a lot of bony turnover, and he had a lot of pain coming from the base of his neck. But this horse did not show that in any clinical exam and gave no indication other than being a little bit heavy and being, you know, this intermittently ducking out, which I assume happened when he was positioned in just the right way that it bothered him. But it took putting this horse in a bone scan to figure out that he actually had a neck problem. Treated this horse um, with local injection and he went back and he does his job just fine. And when that starts to come off, you know, when that starts to wear off, he starts to show these behaviors again. So really, again, interesting learning lesson for me because very sound, doing his job, but obviously something wasn't right. And it was a very not obvious issue. That's what makes these horses tricky is they're telling us something. But the question is, is how hard do we have to listen and how hard do we have to look? How far do we have to go? in order to actually understand what they're telling us. And sometimes it's really difficult. So this is a case of dental issues in a horse. This horse is a 12-year-old, one of our clients, 12-year-old gelding, lovely horse, very talented. But the owner always described him as being a bit crazy. He was predictable under saddle. He was always fussy. He had his teeth done multiple times. There was never any overt issues, but just really was really fussy with any kind of fit in his mouth. We had uh, one of our vets had some x-rays, took some x-rays of his mouth to see if there was anything else going on that we couldn't see. But what we found on both sides of his head, he had very deeply embedded, very jagged wolf teeth that hadn't erupted through the gum. They were under the gum and they were actually embedded right up into the bone, the mandible, and they were causing this horse a lot of grief. This horse went through many periods of being in training and then she would get frustrated and kind of give up and he would go out of training because he was just very, very fussy. And I spoke to her yesterday or a couple of days ago when I asked her if I could use these images and she reports that since he's had these wolf teeth taken out, he's been in consistent training. He still gets a little head shy every once in a while, but she's able to work through it. And he has been absolutely fantastic since having these teeth taken out. So again, keep looking. You know, we, we had to keep looking and one of our vets had the notion to do so um, and and found what the answer for this horse was because it wasn't that that's just how it is. Oh, we'll watch this video really quick because I think this is, I've had a number of these cases over the years. This always comes up on my Facebook or wherever as a joke and it's funny. Oh, haha, ha, the horse that plays dead when he tries to be ridden. Probably you guys have seen this a few times. And this video drives me bananas because this horse is not playing dead. This is an escape mechanism at its finest. And I have had probably three or four cases uh, in the 10 years that I have been a vet where a horse gets to the point where it is so frustrated that it will actually lay down when you try to when when the owner tries to get on or the rider tries to get on it and this is this horse's way of communicating to us that he is not comfortable there is something wrong if he has lost that much motivation to do his job there is a reason for it people think it's funny um, but it's not. This video makes me cringe every time I watch it because I have seen horses do this uh, under tack and it is their way of, you know, they've communicated in every way possible and now they just, they just give up. They're just going to lay down and they know that that will work.
this is an interesting case of some gastric issues, but I found this was a recent case of, in our practice that was really quite interesting. This is a 16-year-old thoroughbred gelding, and his history was that for the past four weeks, he had just started to become really anxious inside. Um, he had been started to become hesitant to go through doors. He was breaking cost ties, very unpredictable um, behavior. You know, the owners and the barn managers were a little bit uh, nervous around him because they weren't sure what he was going to do. He was a normal weight, normal appetite. There had been no change in his management, no change. Um, you know, he hadn't been to a new, uh, a new area, new barn, nothing of the sort. But all of a sudden, this very highly anxious uh, behavior presented itself. And we got into this discussion because one night he colicked and he had to be looked at an emergency. And so we ended up going to the university where we asked him to be scoped. And what we found is even though this horse, you know, had no indication of underlying gastric disease other than this really profound anxiety that had just um, onset, you know, suddenly onset, we found that this horse had very severe pyloric ulcers at the very um, the part of the stomach that empties into the small intestine. And I'll show you a normal picture here for comparison. So this is a normal pylorus, normal healthy uh, tissue. And this is what this horse's pylorus looked like. And so it was a, an interesting learning lesson that you know, we see gastric ulcers all the time. We see gastric disease all the time. And it has a preset standard you know, presentation that, you know, you often hear it and you're like, oh, I think we probably need this horse on some gastric meds. And this one didn't fit the bill, you know. So again, it was a, a good learning um, experience for all of us to go think outside the box, like what else might be bothering this horse. Um, and in this case, it was pretty profound gastric issues. And now that he's on treatment for that, his behavior has settled, he's doing much better. Um, and things are, things are, are really looking up for this horse. But basically, the premise of all of them is the same, is to not assume that behavior is normal. So in this case, horses that are mounting that shouldn't be mounting, if you're not a stallion aiming to breed, um, again, not normal behavior. Look for underlying causes. And we're going to end on a sleep deprivation case here, which... so. Sleep deprivation is something that we do see more often than not, and it's quite alarming to people. Uh, I don't know if anybody has ever seen a horse that has been deprived of sleep that will very suddenly fall down in its stall. And sleep deprivation is a very real thing. And I have seen that the, a lot of these horses get chalked up as, oh, they just do that. They just fall down in their stall. But it's not normal behavior. The main cause that we see with sleep deprivation is often that they are in some kind of discomfort and they are too uncomfortable to lay down and actually sleep. Laying down and sleeping is really important for horses. Yes, they can sleep standing up, but they need to rest by actually laying down. And when they can't do that, um, if they have too much anxiety and they don't feel safe to lie down, or if they are uncomfortable and they can't lie down, then they will start to do this. And so Assuming that a horse just never lies down, which does, I hear that a lot. Oh, he never lies down. That's not normal. Horses should lie down. And if they're not lying down, then there's a reason for it. They're not comfortable in their environment. They're not comfortable physically. There's something going on that's causing that horse to not want to lie down. 
And so sleep deprivation is very real. And when you see that behavior, it indicates often that there is something going on underneath. So we'll conclude here. If you take away anything from today, I want you to just remember that most behavior has an underlying cause. And it's not always possible to understand what it is, but it's always possible to challenge your assumptions. I really try to not let myself ever assume that things are normal unless I really prove to myself that it's just a behavior that the horse does. I have to really back myself into that corner before I let myself believe that a behavior is just a behavior and they're not trying to tell us anything else. It's incredibly important that we understand behavior because not only the horse welfare um, is at stake, but horse and human safety are at stake as well. Many small behaviors are often missed and they progress to more pronounced behaviors that put people in dangerous situations and get horses labeled as dangerous horses. And so understanding the very basic um, basic signs of stress, fear, pain, discomfort, trying to you know understand those basic building blocks and how they might be contributing to behavior that you're witnessing in everyday horses. Um, you know, it's really important. And I would urge you all to really, you know, think about that and think outside the box of what is normal and what is not normal. Um, if anybody has any wants to uh, get some more information on the uh, study that I quoted from Dr. Dyson about the ridden behaviors of discomfort, you can visit this website, equitopiacenter.com. And they actually have like little online courses about, um, you know, learning more about behaviors and discomfort and how it's shown under saddles. So if anybody's interested and wants to learn more, you can certainly go to that website. Okay, so I'm going to look at some questions here. We have a lot of them. So one here says, is yawning an indicator of pain? That is an interesting question because there are there is some research that indicates yawning is an indicator of pain, and there's other um, research that indicates it is not. We often assume, especially in like the chiro and acupuncture world, when we get a horse that really relaxes and they seem to really enjoy what we're doing, they'll often yawn as an expression. And we usually assume that that means it's actually positive and that those horses are relaxed and they're happy. I did come across some research in, you know, preparing this talk that suggests that it might not always mean that they're comfortable. And so I think it's really important to understand the context of how they're doing it and what else they're showing you because in its own right, I don't think it's specific enough to tell you. So there's another question here that said, um, when mentioning signs of pain, um, the fact that 50% experience musculoskeletal pain when being ridden, um, does this mean that it's for the whole duration of the ride or just due to rider errors along with the ride session? So that's a good question. And I'm not sure that the research was specific enough to say, um, but I think what we do, we do see a lot of these behaviors that will repeat themselves throughout the duration of the ride, whether it's rider error, whether it's horse discomfort. I don't know. I think that's very case specific, but I should be a little bit careful. And I should have mentioned this at the beginning when we say, when we use the word pain, we tend to think of like, you know, overt suffering or really hurting. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's overt suffering. Um, maybe discomfort is a better word in that, you know, they're still able to do their job in, in that study. And in these horses that we're talking about, a lot of them are still able to do their jobs, but they are uncomfortable. Um, so you have, you have to be a little bit careful with pain. Um, 
because it often sounds worse than we necessarily mean it. Um, but uh, yeah, whether that, that lasts for the whole duration of the ride or not, I think it is very um, case specific, quite fairly. Uh, so a question here is what kind of issues are associated with geldings hanging their penis out after riding? Hanging their penis out is a very non-specific sign, but it just, yeah, so I don't know that it necessarily associates with any one particular thing. I see it most commonly associated a with any kind of gastric discomfort or gastric pain. Um, colics, we see it a lot in colics. And I do think that some gastric issues are made worse after riding just due to the bouncing, acid churning, that kind of stuff. So I think it could be associated with that. I don't know that it's been correlated with any one particular thing. It's a just a vague sign that something is not quite right. Question here that says, commenting on pawing behavior, uh, what can this indicate? Uh, in particular, I'm thinking of a friend's horse that paws when left alone, uh, tied even for only a moment in the cross ties in the trailer or when tied. I haven't come across a lot of research on exactly what pawing indicates. It is, It has in some studies been associated uh, with an anxiety manif manification, manifestation, sorry. Um, but I don't know that, uh, and I think in that situation, again, it, it, I think all of the behaviors are situation specific. And so it sounds to me like that could be an indication of anxiety of being left alone. Now that's a bit of an overstatement based because I don't know the whole situation, but pawing there isn't a ton of research to say exactly what it means and what it doesn't mean because I think it can be frustration, it can be anxiety, it can be attention-seeking because they often get rewarded. Uh, rewarded meaning acknowledged for pawing, even if it's meant to to stop it. So uh, I think pawing is a little bit nonspecific in that regard as well. There's a couple of questions about breeds that are more likely to be depressed. Um, the actual studies that were done on depression in horses were done in French trotters, which are not that common around here. But they very much in those studies made a point to suggest that even though they were overrepresented in this particular breed um, of French trotters, that was based on their location. And so there's a definite point to say that it needs to be looked at in other breeds in other parts of the world to see what, uh, you know, what other genes or sorry, what other breeds this um, is likely to be found in. Uh, a comment on the video of the little white pony that always dumps the kid, um, if I've seen it or not, and what it means. I have watched that video. I see a lot of these videos and I spend a lot of time wondering what they actually mean. Um, I haven't looked at it recently to to really know for sure, but I don't think that they do that for fun. My instinct is to always you know when a horse is repeatedly dumping a kid um yeah there probably is some rider error in there somewhere as well but it's just not their natural tendency to do those kinds of things to be mean and i think that horse is telling us something and nobody's listening question about do i think a bad horse exists uh do you think a horse can be bad just to be bad or is there always an underlying reason so i said this at the very beginning that I have to really prove to myself that a horse is a bad horse. I have seen some horses that are really, really poorly behaved and very difficult to understand why. 
and I think that there is a bit of a lifetime cumulative effect. And a lot of the research talks about that, even with some of the stereotypical behavior being evidence of a cumulative lifetime impact of stress or, you know, different types of things. And I think uh, there's some interesting uh, information coming out of the States right now, some new studies that are showing that these these bad horses that you really can't find any other reason for why they act the way that they do. And I've seen a number of them over the years uh, in my own practice. And there's some news research coming out of Colorado State that suggests some of these horses actually have some degenerative nerve conditions and some changes in their spinal cord that we don't have any other way of knowing about yet. Like it's really brand new just in the last couple of years. And uh, I will say reading about, speaking to the person that's doing that research and reading about that information, it really leaves me having a very hard time saying that there are really, truly bad horses. I think there's so much that goes into it. Pain, conditioned, fear, lifetime cumulative effects of different things. I don't know that you can really, you know, like, I think there's a lot to it, but I have to really prove to myself that a horse is just bad and they're not trying to communicate otherwise. Somebody said, can you please touch on the mounting horse? My gelding was mounting my mare for the first time a few weeks ago. And the mare was in season, would you recommend having his testosterone levels tested? Yes. Um, I think if a gelding is mounting a mare, uh, it's not normal behavior. And I do think having their testosterone levels, like there's a challenge test that you can do. And I think that that is important to rule out and try and figure out what's happening there. Some geldings can't be housed with mares. You know, they're normal, but they can't be housed with mares because of this. But ruling out the underlying hormonal conditions or if they were cryptorchid, meaning they still have testicular uh, tissue remaining, I think is important. Um, and for the mares, mares that are mounting, because that does happen as well, um, that can often be evidence of um, cystic or retained cysts in the ovaries, sometimes even some tumors on the ovaries that cause abnormal hormonal production. And so mounting behavior is not normal. And if you're having that in geldings or in mares, I think it's important to investigate for sure. Question about what kind of pain is associated with a horse who sticks its tongue out? Is it dental or something else? Again, uh, I don't think sticking their tongue out is specific to one particular thing. I think it's a complaint. Um, And so it's up to us to investigate that whole horse from one end to the other. I would definitely look at its teeth and look at its jaw, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the pain is local to there. I've seen a lot of horses with back pain, actually, that will stick their tongues out when they ride. Question about a young horse in training, uh, decipher between muscle weakness. The horse is having just muscle weakness as it is, snooze riding, or if it's having pain, uh, or if at least for yourself, what would you do to determine if it's pain related or not? So again, the young horse in training, very difficult. Um, Sometimes it's not obvious to tell whether it is a functional weakness you know, a strength building thing or an actual pain thing. Um, sometimes I will put those horses on some kind of medication trial to see if I can eliminate pain, see how they respond to any kind of medication, like, a, you know, an NSAID or something like that to see if that changes their behavior. Uh, and sometimes it's just a matter of looking at them and working through their body systems and really trying to understand where it's coming from. It can be very difficult. I will give you that. But starting with just a once over, um, a thorough exam can be helpful. 
So a question about a young horse that carries tension in the jaw while on the bit, while having a bit in their mouth, resulting in heaviness on the bit, sometimes more on the left than the right. So again, tension in the jaw, just like for people, tension in the jaw can be a result of just about anything. It does not necessarily mean it's local to teeth, local to jaw, or local, you know, because of the bit. Horses that are heavy on the forehand, in my experience, often have uh, either a weakness or a discomfort or uh, need to work on, you know, building hind end strength in order to actually sit back. Horses that can't sit back, that prefer to lean on the bit um, and really have a hard time sitting back. I like to investigate those horses to see if there is some kind of functional um, discomfort or something that's bothering them that prevents them from wanting to do that. But yeah, jaw tension in its own right, very nonspecific. It doesn't necessarily mean any one particular thing. That's the frustrating thing about uh, really any sign of discomfort in horse, in, in any animal is it can be very vague. It can be very nonspecific. And so it's, it's, you know, recognizing them is one thing, but then figuring out what they actually mean is another, and it can be quite challenging. Okay, I think we've got through most of these questions that I can answer easily. Some I can't. And, it, and if anybody wants to reach out to me separately, I'm happy to, uh, you know, have a more one-on-one -on -one discussion about your particular horse. There's some here that are really quite specific that I don't think I can answer without getting some more information. But I want to thank everybody for coming um, and listening and certainly feel free to reach out if we have any more questions or if we want to talk about anything else. Okay. Thanks guys. We hope you liked today's episode on Pain in Horses by Dr. Tova Caldwell. If you have any questions or if you have any suggestions or ideas about things you would like us to talk about on our podcast, please contact us and we'd be happy to uh, make that happen for you. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is not a substitute for regular and emergency veterinary care. Our purpose is to inform and educate horse people not to diagnose and treat medical conditions without a valid veterinary client-patient relationship.